Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China and Norway vows to safeguard multilateralism and free trade. And we will take a look at the efforts by China's financial regulators to stabilize stock markets. Anthony Blinken pushes for enduring Gaza peace deal in his Riyadh visit, and El Salvador's president claims re-election victory in a landslide win. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." China and Norway have vowed to safeguard multilateralism and free trade. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi on Monday met with his visiting Norwegian counterpart Espens Barth Eight here in Beijing. The senior Chinese diplomat said Eight's visit showcases the very fact that the relations between the two countries are maintaining a kind of positive and forward momentum. And for his part. Aid said that the bilateral ties have entered a mature stage, noting the Norwegian side firmly adheres to the One China principle and advocates mutual respect and a constructive dialogue. Aid is here in China for a three-day official visit. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Huiyao, president of the Center for China and Globalization. So. Thank you very much for joining us today. First of all,、um, Aspen Barth Eight is actually the first European Foreign Minister to visit China in 2024. What do you think is at stake in his visit here? Yes, I think that、uh, the Norwegian、uh, Foreign Minister visit to, to China is is very very significant. Actually, I was just talking to the Norwegian ambassador in China. A few days ago, in my office,、uh, when she attended our event, and、uh, you know they attach a great importance to this visit. I can see China also attaches great importance to this visit. Visit, and、uh, you know Director Wang,、uh, former Minister Wang Yi, actually、uh, met him、uh, for for quite substantial、uh, discussion, and、uh, and also I think this is a, a very important. Is the 2024、uh, build on the momentum we had with、uh, all the European leaders on last year. He's the first one to come this year, and and on top of that, and、uh, there's a 70th anniversary of established diplomatic ties between China and Norway. So, so I think his visit is very significant, and this is also in addition to Premier Li Qiang's visit to、uh, Switzerland and、uh, Ireland. And、uh, so you can see those uh, uh, busy traffic and busy exchanges, dialogues. Uh, promoting and standing, and actually, you know, Norway and China ha- had many similar views on global issues, and so it's important that、uh, we meet face to face, and、mm-hmm. we exchange ideas, and we、uh, trying to work together. So this is a very significant,、uh, very symbolic, and、uh, very timely.、Mm. Like you said, this year marks the 70th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic ties between the two sides. Um, from a historical perspective, why do you think Norway became one of the earliest countries in the West to recognize People's Republic of China seventy years ago? And what could be the meaning of that particular legacy、um, in history for the bilateral ties today? Yeah, I think it's uh, quite uh, you know quite、uh, impressive. Actually, you, you can imagine. Uh, we we just celebrated the 60th anniversary、uh, diplomatic with France and、yeah. uh, nor, nor, nor Norway actually 10 years longer than that 70 years of diplomatic ties and、uh, you know no, Norway is、uh, f- from those one of those Nordic countries a very uh, uh, kind of uh, unique and very uh, uh, independent and also very uh, uh, global so. Uh, you can see that、uh, they 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 certainly realize the importance, the impo- potential of People's Republic of China. And、uh, when they when they established diplomatic ties,、uh, you know, seven decades ago, and、uh, they really、uh, felt that、uh, China is a big uh, uh, country that you cannot neglect. And、uh, even Norway is one of the Western countries. I think they are pioneered in this、uh, diplomatic ties. And also, they are very、uh, unique in many global issues, and、uh, very often China and Norway share a lot of similar similar, similar views. 
and of course, uh, uh, but also there's a bilateral trade, there's bilateral economics, there's uh, people to people exchanges, there's there's, there's many, uh, and and also the uh, you know when we invited the Nordic ambassador to our to our CCG ambassador roundtable, five Nordic countries came. Uh, they talk about com- common prosperity that they've been experiencing, which are a lot of uh, stimulating points for for the Chinese uh, uh, society and development. And so, so I think there's so so much similarity, even though Norway is not a huge country, but uh, you know they, they, it does plays a very important uh, role in terms of international affairs. Uh, they had many uh, unique views and many international outlook that that is quite uh, unique to, to Norway. So. It's important that while we are uh, quickly uh, re- revive uh, after pandemic uh, China-EU relations, uh, Norway uh, Foreign Minister first one to come uh, during the Chinese New Year 2024 mm-hmm. uh, symbolize the importance and uh, a great uh, attached a great importance to this relation. So I think that means you know we had a very good uh, very good tradition and we need to continue to do that. Okay. So talking about Norway, I think what would immediately um, come to the minds of many fish lovers here in China is, of course, the salmon imported from that country. And in a bigger picture sense, we understand Norwegian businesses have actually participated in the annual China International Import Expo held in Shanghai for six uh, consecutive years. And also Norway's sovereign uh, wealth fund has investment interests worth tens of billions of U.S. dollars in some hundreds of Chinese companies. What do you think are the highlights or the potentials when we talk about Trade and economic ties between the two countries. Yes, this is uh, this is very important. Actually, you know that uh, the Norwegian salmon, of course, is well known in China. It's very tasty, very delicious, and is loved by many uh, uh, fish uh, found, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chinese uh, uh, customers. And uh, uh, so, so I think that, that part we need to continue. You, uh, I mean, that's probably the best uh, uh, salmon you can find in the world. Uh, from from Nordic area, and uh, also that uh, it, it, there's a, there's a lot of industrial cooperation. There's some, uh, you know, uh, on the on the clean energy and also climate. I mean, so you they are very active participating in China Import Expo for six years in a row, uh, which means something. Which means that they are very determined, committed uh, to the Chinese market, and uh, and so I think that uh, you know we should continue this kind of a. Uh, great relations, and uh, because uh, as as Chinese uh, people's living standards has has really improved greatly in the last uh, several decades, the consumption of of good Norwegian salmon is uh, is absolutely become uh, uh, one of the best uh, cuisine in China. So 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 I think you know Norway, even though it's not a you know big country, but they have a very unique product. They have a very unique uh, trade relation with China, and and also I I think that. Uh, I know that China has also uh, granted the Nor- Norway travelers uh, 144 hours of visa-free to transit uh, in Beijing or, or Shanghai or Guangzhou. But I hope that we can give them, uh, you know, a visa-free uh, uh, status like we give to other mm-hmm. five, six, uh, seven uh, European countries. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know we should do more uh, to improve our bilateral relations and uh, to to continue our trade and economic cooperation. And also, you know, we we hold a lot of similar views on on global issues, like like on the Middle East, on on crisis happening there, on mm. on you know what we can do together. There's there's a lot of things I think need China and Norway being one of the important countries in the Nordic region to collaborate. And we need to exchange uh, views. We need to come find the common ground, and we can also really work together uh, for 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 the future. Mm. In particular, during their Monday meeting, Mr. Espen's bars eight told Mr. Wang Yi that the two sides have broad space for cooperation in areas like um, jointly tackling the negative impact of uh, global warming and green transformation. So, Dr. Wang, what is your understanding in this particular regard? We understand Norway is actually home to pretty rich resources in terms of oil and gas, those fossil fuel energy. With that in mind, what could be the pattern of green energy cooperation between the two sides? Yes, uh, 
actually the uh, the Norwegian is is very rich in the, in the in the, in the energy and uh, clean energy, and and the future a trend of of clean tech, and uh, and China is also one of the leaders now in the world on those clean energy and uh, EV cars and and all those things. So so there's a lot of uh, uh, potential that China and Norway can deepen the cooperation, so we can serve as a successful model for other countries uh, in Europe where we hear a lot of. Uh, you know, there may be some different views, but I think if we can find a way uh, to work together, that would be really a great uh, uh, example for other cooperation uh, in, in the European uh, continent. Uh, but also, uh, on the other hand, and uh, there's a lot of similar views uh, on, on the global issues. We know that uh, Norway was very active. We have Oslo agreement for, for Israel-Palestinian yeah. uh, uh, crisis. But now the crisis has erupted again, and... Uh, China and, and Norway should uh, work together like we should e- immediately uh, pursue a ceasefire uh, for the Gaza uh, uh, you know, conflict. And, mm-hmm. and we should also support the two-state uh, uh, you know, solution for the Palestinian crisis. So, so I think in, in that, but also on the climate, you know, there's many things, issues. We see a lot of similarities and uh, we can really work together. So, so in origin, even though uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, you know very active in the in the economic area, but also very active in the political and global affairs arena, and uh, they can really uh, lead some some uh, great uh, discussions. So so I think you know this meeting between Foreign Minister Wang Yi and uh, Norwegian Foreign Minister is really a, a, a great uh, timing and a good 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 occasion uh, to exchange uh, uh, notes, compare positions, and come up with some common consensus. On the issues of uh, political, uh, geopolitical crisis, but also on economic cooperation. So this is really uh, very much expected uh, in the in the in this visit. Mm, yeah, I guess uh, when we talk about say the Gaza crisis, it is indeed a talking point during this Monday meeting between the two foreign ministers. Wang Yi said that although the two sides are geographically part with different national conditions and systems. They should be the forces of、uh, stability, peace, and prosperity in the international community. So, why do you think,、um, when we talk about, say,、uh, advocating multilateralism or advocating free trade, these things are in the mutual interests of China and Norway? Yeah, I, I think that、uh, both Norway and China are beneficiaries of this global free trade and globalization. And Norwegian is a trade nation, and.、Uh, You know they have a big, uh, 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 you know, influence in the in the in the trade. I think particularly、uh, in certain categories. And uh, if uh, China and uh, and uh, Norwegian can work together on the on the multilateralism, on the UN、uh, resolution to some crises, on the、uh, you know the climate uh, issues, uh, there could be many many countries be be impacted and uh, uh, agreed upon. So. So I think you know that、uh, they are taking a lead. They are they are doing some pioneer work uh, for uh, strengthening the、uh, common understanding between、uh, Europeans and Chinese.、Uh, you know, I think the Foreign Minister of Norway has done a good job in terms of uh, uh, you know making all those things、uh, known to to the to the Chinese counterpart, and vice versa. Chinese、uh, Foreign Minister has made the Chinese position known to the uh, uh, his counterpart in Norway. So I I think this is a very good.、Uh, Uh, uh, you know, momentum that、uh, that we need to ride on, and、uh, and particularly during the 70th years of of diplomatic ties, this is、uh, this is so、uh, crucial and so important that we should really celebrate that、uh, with a new spirit of multilateralism and cooperation. So, so in that sense, with the deglobalization, with the risk、uh, rising everywhere,、uh, China Norway cooperation is very very important and very. Uh, timely to 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 inject stability to the world uh, situation. Hmm, that's Doctor Wang Huiyao, President of the Center for China and Globalization. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You are listening to World Today. Chinese financial regulators have taken more steps to stabilize the stock markets in the country. The China Securities Regulatory Commission said on Monday that it will closely monitor and take forceful measures to prevent risks from plunged shares. The regulator also warned against the "quote unquote" malicious short selling. 
Over the past few days, the regulator has made a range of policy announcements aimed at settling investors' nerves, including a pledge to guide institutional investors to increase their investment and encourage companies to step up share buybacks. Central Huijing, a unit of China's massive sovereign wealth fund, said on Tuesday that it had expanded、uh, purchases of ETF, namely exchange-traded funds. Linked to the country's onshore stocks. So joining us now on the line is Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer with Novum Aki Technologies. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So Jiahe, let's first of all talk talk about this、uh, risks regarding plans to shares. We understand so far this year, according to the、uh, Securities Regulation Commission,、uh, more than 100 listed、uh, companies have disclosed that they are major shareholders. Are putting up additional collaterals now. Can you help explain how this so-called pledge mechanism works, and how do you evaluate the risks regarding, say, forced liquidation? Well, basically speaking, is that the the dominant shareholders of these companies they borrowed、uh, money from financial institutions and used their shares as collaterals, and and now well, usually what. Going on is that if you borrow like five、uh, billion RM,、uh, five billion RMB, or say、uh, probably five hundred million RMB, then what you have to do is that you have to pay about twice、uh, the amount of the shares to the financial、uh, institution in order to borrow this money. And when the stock price of your company falls, you have to add the collateral. So this is actually what happens.、Um, mm. Basically speaking, this is not well. This is a very euro phenomenon. When you have a bear market,、okay. and if you think that Asia has got like、uh, almost six thousand companies and only a hundred of them are doing this, so this is a risk that is not that large. Okay, so、um, to what extent do you think the the securities、uh, regulator can fend off the so-called malicious short selling? Well, if you look at the short selling scale in China, it's really, really small.、Mm. Uh, currently, uh, currently, the short selling is about zero point one percent of the total market capitalization of Asia market. So, basically speaking, this is not a very large thing to、uh, take the market downward. And now, the regulatory committee,、uh, because they try to stop the falling of the market and bring the market back to the bull market again, they are stopping this as well. So this is not a very、uh, large thing, and it's now、uh, moved away、uh, from the forces that are pushing down the market. So it is even better for the market.、Hmm. So in other words, short selling has never been a problem here for China's Asia market, I guess. Now, in the meantime,、um, Central Huijing is of course part of this、uh, quote-unquote so-called national team, namely some state-backed or state-supported.、Uh, Uh, or sponsored investors that have been employed to help shore up the equities with some, say, strategically timed purchases. So, how much does this move by、uh, Central Huijing matter? Well, if you look at the move of the Central Huijing, they have been purchasing ETFs, especially the ETFs of major indices. And if you look at the major indices of China right now, it's actually stabilized、uh, in recent trading days. And you can say that central Huijing's、uh, buying has actually been doing its its job. And another very important thing is that is it's not just the buying itself. It's actually more important. It's the influence that it brings and the confidence that it brings to the market. You know, when the market sees the government is keep on buying, they say, okay, the government is not、uh, worrying about losing money. So why would I be worrying about losing money? So they start buying as well. So I think this. Confidence、uh, is even much more important than the purchasing itself. Okay, so I guess in another interpretation, this is also a sign that China's、uh, top leaders or policymakers are attaching great importance to the optimism or the confidence on the part of shareholders and stock market investors. But in a bigger picture sense, Jia, in your observation. What do you think are really some of the issues or factors or problems that have、uh, really led to this recent market volatility? Well, the market volatility is always there. One of the reasons that is causing this、uh, bear market is basically because we had a super bull market back three years ago. You know,、uh, mm. when, when you had a, had a very large bull market between twenty nineteen twenty twenty one, if people still remember for small cap companies. 
And then the, we, we had this bear market right now. So, you know, the, the company stock prices wound up were in the first place and came downward in the second place. And if you talk about the fluctuation, I mean, the fluctuation is in the stock market at all times. If you remember back in 1987, the mm. S&P 500 index dropped by 27% in one single day without a reason at all. And the next day, the Hong Kong market opened. The Hansen index dropped by 40% in just one single day. So that's, that's called volatility, you know. Uh, compared with that, we are not that volatile. So if you look at the stock market, it's volatile all the time. It never stops. Okay. Well, thank you very much for presenting us with a historical perspective dating back to the uh, early 1980s. That's pretty interesting and beyond the knowledge of many of our listeners, I guess. Now, some people worry whether the the current scenario we have seen will lead to will somehow lead to a repeat of this crash back in 2015. What is your take on this? Well, I would say the, the, the story right now is actually different from what we had back in 2015. Uh, I, I mean, if you just compare the valuation of companies uh, in uh, at the very top of the 2015 uh, bull market and the current market, I mean, if you look at the blue chip companies back in 2015, their valuation was about 20 times P ratio. And now they have something like five to six times P ratio. And if you go to Hong Kong market, you see like three to four times P ratio. And if you look at small cap companies, for example, the Chinex uh, index, in 2015, it was trading at 150 times P ratio. Now the valuation is about 20 to 25. So currently, we are having a market that is much cheaper compared with 2015. If the market keeps on falling, you will see a lot of shareholders and you know industrial capital start to buy these shares, basically because it's cheaper to buy these shares compared with building another company by yourself because of the valuation. So the current situation is actually quite different from the you know the very top of 2015. Mm, okay. Uh, so on the part of or on the side of the real economy side or the the macro economy was was regard to the situation in China um in that perspective the, what what do you think is the difference or the fundamental difference between now and 2015 well if you look back at 2015 we, we had an economic growth that was higher than this moment mm -hmm. uh, basically because the real estate uh, market was uh, you know still in its era of prosperity and currently we're trying to contain the real estate bubble mm -hmm. so that that's the thing another thing is that in 2015 if you look at the size of the chinese economy i think it's about 60 or 70% uh, of the current moment so it's actually a much smaller economy compared with now so if you talk about the economic growth, I think uh, currently you're having an even stronger potential, basically because last year we have got this GDP growth rate of 5.2%, based on the fact that our real estate was going downward. And that's very interesting because usually if you have a very bad real estate market, you won't have a very good GDP. But we had a very good GDP, and people questioning that GDP said, okay, is that GDP real? And if you look at the electricity, the electricity generated, we grew at 7% last year. So that tells you the economy is really stable at this moment. Mm. And it's a much larger economy compared with 2015. Okay. Yeah, electricity is a good indicator, that's for sure. Now... Um, this kind of national team buying could, of course, um, circuit break the downward spiral we are seeing right now. But in addition to that, what else do you think is needed as well if we are talking about stabilization of these stocks? Briefly. Well, statistically speaking, we have saw in the past that the five trading days before the Lunar New Year, you really see the market rising. So you probably have a market stabilizing but people are not really sure about that. You know, people, we, we never be successful with predicting the short-term market. Nobody knows that. Uh, but the thing is that based on the valuation right now, uh, if the market keeps on falling, there will be shareholders jumping in to buy companies, especially for the large companies. I mean, if you look at their valuation, they're really cheap. Actually, the, their price didn't fail uh, too much in this run of uh, bear market. And if you look at small cap companies, their valuation are close to like... Uh, around mm. 20 to 25 times P ratio. So if that drops again, uh, probably some shareholders will start buying as well. Yeah, thank you very much. That was Chen Jiahe joining us from Novan Aki Technologies. We'll be back after a short break. I am 
Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, has upgraded its growth forecast for the global economy for 2024. It says the world economy will expand by 2.9 percent this year, higher than its previous forecast of 2.7 percent. Much of the expected global growth will come from China. Which the organization expects to grow by 4.7 percent this year. The OECD has also upgraded U.S. economic growth to 2.1 percent in 2024 and 1.7 percent in 2025. So, for more on this、uh, issue, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier had a talk with Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, so the OECD has upgraded its forecast for the global economic growth to 2.9 percent for this year. So, how do you see this forecast, and what do you think are some of the key factors that influence the global economy this year? Yes, we know that、uh, in the last year there are so many turbulence in the world about the geopolitical uncertainties and also many things to do with、uh, reconstruction of the global supply chain. Well, at the beginning of this year, I think that OECD has better confidence on the development of this year because、uh, they are really seeing that many countries are trying to work hard to do better to improve the economic integration and trying to cooperate with each others. Well, at the same time, we know that. The、uh, new energy has transformed a lot in many of these countries, including using a different kind of vehicles and together with、uh, the renewable energy、uh, infrastructure. So I think that、uh, these new、uh, kind of、uh, forces are able to provide better support for the global recovery, and it's a better year after one year of、uh, uncertainties、uh, after the COVID-19. So we know that、uh, it it maybe have a better future in this year. And the OECD is concerned about the disruptions in global trade with sharp delays and some 100 percent cost increase following the attacks in the Red Sea. So how do you see the geopolitical tensions as a significant risk to trade and inflation and also the global economy? Yeah, it's a, a really important one because you know what happened in the Red Sea is uh, uh, trying to stop the, the normal trade between the Europe and Asia, especially. Well, we see that many kind of、uh, solutions has been provided by、uh, through other kind of、uh, like from the rails from、uh, you know go around in the Africa. But I do believe that there are more. Kind of measures that we are able to deal with these ge- geopolitical tensions. But what is more uncertain,、uh, in my understanding, is you know, what we cannot foresee right now. It is not only happened in the Middle East, but also in many other areas, like in the South、uh, America and also in some of the Asian areas. So it is a really big uncertainty for many of the stakeholders to be involved in the global trade. We know that global trade is a, a kind of activities that we have to. Foreseen for a, a couple of uh, uh, months beforehand, and we can make decisions by allocating the stocks and the resources. So we need to know more about the uncertainties, and we should look at carefully about the political、uh, environment in the different countries. Because this year there are so many elections in many countries.、Mm. And the OECD also expects the Chinese economy to grow 4.7 percent this year, and we know that China's GDP grew by 5.2 percent in the year 2023, hitting the government around the 5 percent target. So, what's the current state of the China's economy? Do you think? And are we seeing the economy has stabilized and is going to be even stronger than last year? Yeah,、uh, you know, I still remember that one year ago when I was asked about these questions, I said that there's no questions about the numbers of five percent because the Chinese government is not only trying to reach the 
you know, the speed of uh, GDP growth, but trying to make it uh, with a higher quality. So we reached the 5.2% is an, a remarkable, uh, I mean, achievement in my understanding. We are doing better to improve the quality of the economic growth. So for this year, I think the OECD still have a lot of uh, confidence that China as the second largest economies in the world still have a very sustainable and strong development pace. And that is not only benefit the Chinese market, but also are providing more and more opportunities for the stakeholders with the trading partners and other countries along the Belt and Road regions. So I think that China is a really a big potential for the changes, for a lot of uh, innovations. And we are uh, having a better you know, the rule-based environment for the stakeholders to come here to invest in China and also benefit by the improvement of the supply chains. Mm. And China has urged efforts to accelerate the development of new productive forces. So, Dr. Zhou, what does this new productive forces refer to in our economic activities? I think that in my understanding, it's uh, not only about the normal ways of uh, development. We are still trying to have a better use of our uh, mass of the manufacturing's uh, complicated cooperation among the sectors. But we are trying to improve the better enforcement or trying to give better factors, including the digital trade, digital economies and some other kind of innovation based uh, development. So we are going to provide a better room for these innovations uh, and the factors to be used in the development of the economy. And it is going to support the traditional ways of development of the trade and investment. And the new productive uh, forces are really some kind of thing that nobody in the world has ever tried before to have uh, integrated and uh, provided a better platforms for the development. So Chinese government is trying to touch this area. And I, I think it's a really good opportunity for us to have a better and sustainable development. Mm. And you mentioned innovation and China is used to be called the world factories. It's made in China, but now it should be innovative in China. So could you tell us more on that? And EVs, the lithium batteries and solar panels, they are green trails and export trails for China, right? So what's their contribution to not only China, but also the world? Yeah, I, I agree with you that if you're looking at the data, you can find that last year, especially when we see the three new or green products exports from China, it's, uh, they are growing very fast. I think the reason is very simple. They, many countries, the importing countries are trying to benefit from the China's, uh, you know, the, the supply of those products to support their growth, sustainable growth. So these new things are really a kind of things if we are going to touch for the low carbon development. And I believe that it is still are, you know, a two ways uh, cooperation. These exports can also improve China's uh, innovative uh, ways of producing those and providing better products to provide the world with a brighter future. Mm. And will China continue to be an attractive destination for the global investors, do you think? Yeah, I believe so, because, uh, you know, the market is still very, uh, very mass and we are having better integration domestically. So the different regions in China are when they are connected, they are providing many more opportunities. And on the other hand, Chinese government is very firm to open our market to have a better environment on the law and the regulation based environment. And we are going to facilitate the investment. So the cooperation between the FDI and Chinese own kind of enterprises can have a better uh, support for the development for the benefits of both sides. The OECD also upgraded the U.S. economic growth to 2.1% this year, but the U.S. national debt topped 34 trillion U.S. dollars. So how could they deal with this debt issue? The Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said the U.S. federal government is on unsustainable fiscal path. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree with that. You know, when the the fiscal 
problem is uh, becoming uh, more and more important. The market is uh, lack of uh, enough confidence. So I, I mean, the fragile of this uh, fiscal problem about the debt issue in the United States are based on the confidence of the market. If the investors believe that these things are not sustainable, if they are still keeping a very high uh, interest rate, I, I would say that, uh, that this year maybe United States will face a lot of problems about more diversified of the investment. People can just invest in other countries' currencies and also the financial products. Mm. And the OECD also pointed that Indonesia's economy is seen growing 5.1% this year and 5.2% next year. The country is expected to grow at a steady pace over the next few years, helped by strong investment. So why are they so optimistic about Indonesia? Yeah, Indonesia is uh, also a country with many people. I mean, the population is good. And also they are better connected with uh, the countries around that, like China. So I, I would say that uh, like for the Belt and Road Corporation, China and Indonesia has uh, a, make a better improvement, uh, like in the infrastructure, in the digital economies and other areas. By the better connections and the better room for the innovation, I believe that Indonesia will also be a very strong force in the ASEAN countries also in Asia. My colleague Zhao Yang speaking with Dr. Zhou Mi from the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is on a four-day tour of the Middle East seeking progress on a deal to pause the war in Gaza. He met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on his first stop in the city of Riyadh. He is flying over to Egypt on Tuesday, and the trip will also include meetings in Qatar, Israel, as well as the West Bank. This is the U.S. top diplomat's fifth trip to the region since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war in October. So, for more, my colleague Zhao Ying is now joining us here in the studio. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. So, can you first of all give us a very brief and, and quick overview regarding uh, Anthony Blinken's goal for this particular trip? Well, according to the U.S. State Department, there are several key objectives for Blinken's trip. Uh, the top priority is to de-escalate the tensions and protect civilians. Blinken, Blinken is hoping to hammer out an agreement on a ceasefire and secure the release of remaining hostages there and uh, to allow more desperately needed aid into Gaza. And he's also expected to discuss mechanisms to stem violence, calm rhetoric, and reduce regional tensions, including deterring Houthi attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea and avoiding escalation in Lebanon. And it's said that he will also reaffirm the U.S. commitment to working with partners to set the conditions necessary for peace in the Middle East, which includes tangible steps towards a two-state solution. Uh, but as you mentioned, this is Blinken's fifth trip to the Middle East since the start of the Gaza conflict, and this comes as Joe Biden faces growing domestic pressure from both parties as he seeks re-election. Mm-hmm. And it is reported earlier that dozens of State Department employees have signed internal memos to Anthony Blinken. Lincoln expressing serious disagreements with the Biden administration's approach to Israel's military campaign in Gaza, and uh, the message urged the Biden administration to press Israel for a ceasefire. And ironically, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said in a speech in September last year uh, that shortly before the outbreak of the conflict in Gaza that uh, the Middle East is quieter today than it has been in two decades. And he said the Biden administration wants to depressurize, de-escalate, and ultimately integrate the Middle East region. And to do that, they relied on three strands of policy, promote Arab-Israel normalization, positive uh, pursue diplomacy with Iran and push efforts at economic integration. But, I mean, Biden's Middle East policy seems to be a failure now as he ignored Mm. the most important part, that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So now as the country has into presidential election, I think uh, Biden is eager to seek uh, some breakthrough in the Middle East, and uh, that partly explains the frequency of Blinken's visit to the region. Okay, so I guess when Jake Sullivan made that um, particular, that very speech back in, in September last year, 
Uh, apparently, he didn't see this kind of、uh, underlying flame going on over there in that region. That's for sure. Now, according to the U.S. State Department, during Blinken's meeting with Saudi Crown Prince, they discussed the regional coordination to achieve a so-called enduring end to this crisis in Gaza. In your understanding, what do you think will be some of the key factors that is essential to achieving that very goal? Uh, well, first,、um, it is reported that Israel is still waiting for Hamas officials to respond to a proposal to pause the fighting in Gaza and release the hostages. But leaders of Hamas has signaled that、uh, substantial gaps remained between the two sides. And、uh, Biden's discussion with、uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman focused on addressing humanitarian needs in Gaza, and、uh, the U.S. is also pushing for Saudi-Israel normalization,、uh, which is a long-term objective that the U.S. considers important to stabilizing the Middle East. And、um, under a, a proposed deal, the U.S. would offer Saudi Arabia a defense treaty. Help with a civilian nuclear program and increase arms sales, while the Saudis and Americans would,、um, in theory, get Israel to accept conditions for concrete steps towards the creation of a Palestinian state in return for Saudi recognition. But I think、um, the conflict in Gaza has already underscored the challenges of achieving regional peace through normalization deals between the Arab states and Israel, particularly when、uh, the Palestinian cause is not at Adequately addressed, and、um, in the meantime, there seems to be some disagreements between Netanyahu and、uh, the Biden administration.、Uh, Israel's national security minister said in a recent Wall Street Journal interview that the U.S. conduct would be different under Donald Trump. And、uh, later, Netanyahu said he appreciates、uh, the the support they have. Received from Biden since the outbreak of the war, but this doesn't mean they do not have differences、uh, in their opinions. And he also said, "quote unquote, I don't need help to know how to navigate our relations with the U.S. and international community while standing firm on our national interests." So, how much constraints、um, does the U.S. still exert on Israel's policies and actions?、Um, this is perhaps、uh, the biggest challenge facing the Biden administration. Administration right now,、yeah. and also I think,、um, I mean, obviously a two-state solution is the only path towards enduring peace in the region. But I think、uh, the ceasefire or so-called enduring end to the Gaza war that Blinken was talking about is、uh, based on the military deterrence of the U.S. and Israel in the Middle East, and this means more U.S. military presence in the region. But this kind of policy ignored. The legitimate interests of Palestinian people, and will only further escalate the conflicts.、Mm, yeah, I, I guess this kind of、uh, disagreement between Netanyahu and the Biden administration you talk about it is long running, and it is, let's put it in this way, it is an open secret. Now, talking about more U.S. presence in the region, we understand in the meantime. U.S. military forces have launched new strikes against the Houthis' missile infrastructure over there in Yemen after a major wave of retaliatory attacks against, say, Iranian-aligned、uh, militias in Iraq and Syria. Now, of course, one thing we know is that President Biden himself has time and time said. Um, time and time again, said that he wanted to avoid escalation since the start of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. But how do you think these latest military action on the part of Washington or the U.S. military is going to affect this ongoing conflict? These ongoing conflicts, despite say this latest diplomatic efforts we have seen from say Blinken. Yes, Biden said earlier that he's not looking for a wider war in the Middle East, but the fact is the U.S. has already gotten、uh, got itself involved in a war in the wider Middle East, and its retaliatory strikes are not working in terms of de-escalating tensions. And on the contrary, they are leading to more strikes and further escalation of multifaceted tensions in the region. So. Uh, perhaps it is time for the Biden administration to reconsider its strategies, and I don't think it is、uh, in the U.S. interest to risk a major Middle East war that could cause massive U.S. casualties as well. So the final question before we let you go, Zhao Ying. 
Um, do you have the latest updates regarding the humanitarian situation on the Gaza Strip? Well, according to the UNICEF, around 17,000 children in Gaza are either separated from their families or unaccompanied. And the UNICEF has described Gaza as the most dangerous place in the world to be a child. It says Israel's war against Hamas has turned uh, the enclave into a graveyard for thousands of children. And data reveals that children make up approximately 40% of the 27,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza since October 7th, 2023. And in a bid to increase their chances for survival, some parents have resorted to dispersing their children among relatives in different parts of Gaza, and others have taken some uh, extreme measures like inscribing their children's names directly into their skin in case they are lost, orphaned, or killed and need to be identified. And, and I mean, this underscores the urgent need for more international intervention and humanitarian support in Gaza. Thank you very much for joining us. That was my colleague Zhao Ying. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. In El Salvador, President Nayib Bukele has secured a landslide re-election victory delivering a speech in the country's capital. The 42-year-old Salvadorian leader said he won more than 85% of the vote, and his political party has captured almost every seat in the country's legislature. In 2022, the millennial president introduced a tough campaign against the gangs and organized crimes. More than 75,000 suspects have been arrested under that very policy. So joining us now on the line is, is Professor Jiang Shixue from the College of International Relations, Sichuan International Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. So, yes. Professor Jiang, what do you make of President Bukhili's uh, landslide victory this time around? Many observers say this is a signal that voters in that country are seeking a continuation of his tough policy, his tough security measures against organized crimes and gangsters. Do you agree? Why or why not? Yes, uh, I would uh, say yes. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, over the uh, past four years, uh, President Buckler has done a lot in terms of um, uh, improving uh, the so-called uh, security or fighting against the crimes. You know, uh, this uh, Central American country, El Salvador, is well known for high rates of uh, crimes, killings, all kinds of things. So I believe that um, <clears throat> this, uh, this presidential victory uh, simply means that uh, uh, people in this uh, country uh, wish to see a kind of a continuation of the uh, tough policy against the crimes. Okay. So how would you view those criticism from the outside towards this particular election as well as towards uh, Bakili's anti-gangster campaign? Well, first of all, we must recognize the fact that uh, crime is really a big problem uh, for El Salvador. Yeah. Uh, in... In uh, 2019, uh, that's uh, two months before he came to power, mm. uh, I visited this uh, Central American country, and I saw I saw many uh, uh, security guards uh, with uh, guns, rifles on their back, uh, standing uh, uh, standing everywhere uh, to protect. Uh, uh, well buildings, all kinds of buildings. So you can see that um, the crime situation is really a big problem. And uh, now it is reported that uh, uh, this kind of situation has uh, uh, been improved greatly. You know, uh, it is reported that 1% of the total population uh, had been uh, punished by different ways. Okay. Yeah. So in order to deal with this kind of a tough situation, so the government uh, might uh, uh, apply some uh, unconventional means to deal with these crime rates. 
Yes, so it is logical to understand that uh, people uh, want to criticize um, the government for for a so-called undemocratic or violation of uh, of human rights of these uh, uh, organized gangs. Uh, but uh, well, it depends on how would you look at the facts. Yeah, you, you know uh, so. But uh, I would point out that most of the people nowadays believe that it is necessary to deal with uh, organized crimes in a tough measure. Okay. Now, some people used to call El Salvador as the murder capital of the world. Whether this nickname is fair or not, I guess that's another debate. That's pretty controversial for sure. But what do you think are the problems or issues that have led to this perceived danger in this country? In Latin America, I think uh, many countries have been suffering from this kind of crimes or organized against all kinds of things. And uh, El Salvador is one of the worst. Uh, so many people have been killed. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, there are several reasons, politically speaking, over the past uh, several decades, before before the the 1990s, this country had been suffering from political instability, and there was a civil war going uh, going on for one decade. And uh, secondly. I would say that economically speaking, uh, people's living standards are not so high. Uh, the uh, the per capita GDP is only five thousand U.S. dollars. So without uh, political stability, without uh, a nice economy, rising unemployment rate, and the in. Uh, inefficiency of the government dealing with this kind of crime will finally result in uh, a big uh, mm-hmm. rise of crimes. So it is very easy to understand. In order to deal with this kind of situation, well, mm-hmm. the government needs to do many, many things. But uh, we, are going, we have seen the well, nice beginning of the situation. Hopefully, it will turn better and better. Hmm. Responding to criticism, President Bukele once said that El Salvador had tried countless security measures or solutions put forward by the U.S., by the EU, or by the Organization of American States, but none of them had worked. Do you think he has a point here? Very, very briefly. Well, these kind of things cannot be dealt with by by the outside. Well, the government itself should do more to protect uh, the rights or the so-called citizenship of the people. So I don't believe that outsiders can really do a very efficient job. So I hope that uh, in the uh, in the next four years, the government will take more uh, effective measures to improve the economy. So we have done the the first job mm. to 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 cut down. The rate of crime. Yeah. And now you have to do something to improve the economy. Otherwise, yeah. this this kind of organized crimes will come back again.、Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Jiang Shixue. You are listening to World Today. That's all the time for this edition of the program. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Bye for now.